each of you. It's good to have the opportunity to come back together again and worship God. If you will, take your Bibles and open to Mark the third chapter. Mark the third chapter. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. We hope that uh, you'll be able to come back and be with us uh, time and time again. We're honored to have you with us. You know, as this morning we thought about the value of children and the responsibility of, of helping children and the great uh, work that that is. I also think that uh, yesterday there was a group of uh, eight or so that gathered and talked for two hours about the possibility of doing mission work in the Ukraine uh, to go into summer youth camps that at one time uh, they used that very same block of time to indoctrinate the very ground level of communism, and now we're having the invitation to come in and use that same time slot to speak and to teach from the Bible about character and values. And, uh, and, and so there was a group doing that yesterday because of the love for children across the world. And then downstairs at the very same time, there were a group of ladies that worked many hours on quilts that would be taken uh, to children that are in foster group care. And then uh, this morning, we had many that were teaching our children here. We had a lesson with an announcement at the end that told us of the wonderful opportunity that we have to, to help foster children right here in our area. And then a meeting took place this afternoon to talk about Vacation Bible School where we'll be inviting kids from all over this community to come and to learn more of Jesus. It is amazing the opportunities that God gives us, and let's make sure that, that we're faithful in all of those things, and we appreciate each one uh, that's working, uh, leading, and also uh, serving along in all of these areas. Let's make sure that we find our place in life that surely we can make some kind of positive impact upon the life of a child. Tonight we'll continue in a series that you may not even be aware of the fact that we've been in a series. This year uh, we're doing about three series throughout the whole year and we'll only have uh, lessons out of these series uh, just randomly throughout the months. One of the things that I was hoping that we could do as a congregation this year is to study the life of the apostles. And if you remember a few weeks ago, as we looked at the people that were in and around the cross, we looked one night at the life of Peter, of course, one of the apostles. And if you'll remember also when we thought about uh, Friends Day, the week before Friends Day, or maybe two weeks before Friends Day, was the challenge to invite our friends, and we looked at the Apostle Andrew and how he was such a wonderful example of an individual that was concerned about the lives of individuals. And in fact, we ought to also be like Andrew in that sense, to be concerned about the lives of individuals and to be that link. And I hope several of you still have your keychains and you have your link on your keychain to remind you that you may be the only link between one of your friends and Jesus Christ. And let's be that link to bring them to Christ. Tonight, let's continue that series as we look at another apostle, and this apostle is in the inner circle of Jesus Christ, but yet, as we consider this apostle James, he's very unusual in the sense that only once in all of the scriptures is he mentioned standing alone. In other words, most of the time when we read about James, we also read about uh, James and John, or we read about James in a list of apostles. 
And so from that standpoint, it's interesting that even though he's in the inner circle, he doesn't seem to be one of the, the prominent ones of the inner circle. Now, just a note of interest here for, for the uh, Sunday night crowd that usually digs a little deeper in the scriptures. There were two sets of brothers that made up the inner circle with Jesus. You had Peter and Andrew and James and John. Now, it's interesting that Peter seemed to be the natural leader of the inner circle, but yet it wasn't his family that seemed to have the, the uh, prominent position in their society. Let me give you a couple examples. In other words, it was the sons of Zebedee that seemed to have a greater prominence in their community because, in fact, they were called oftentimes the sons of Zebedee. You see, that pointed to the fact that some way Zebedee was well known in his community or they would not have been referred like that. Also, we tend to think that they must have had perhaps a little more money than maybe some of the others simply from the standpoint his business wasn't just a father and son operation. If you remember in Mark, the first chapter, when Jesus called away the brothers to serve him in faithful and uh, full-time service, the Scripture says that they left behind the boats, their father, and the hired servants. And if you also remember over in the book of John, whenever Peter was wanting to follow Jesus after his arrest, you remember who it was that had to go back to the woman that was caring for the door in the court of the high priest and say, it's all right to let him in? You remember it was John, the son of Zebedee, that had enough pull, if you will, within the inner courts of the high priest that he was the one that had to go back and say, it's okay for Peter to enter into here. So it's interesting that although they seemed to have the family that was more prominent, it was Peter that was the one that was a natural leader. Now, on the other hand, because James is listed first as the apostles are listed, we assume that James is older than John, and yet John has more of a key role, as the story is told in the Scriptures, of the interaction with Jesus. You remember, it's John that's described as the apostle that Jesus loved, and it's John that we see many more times in the Scripture. Now, those are some things that hopefully they're of interest to you, but they, they help us to understand that even though James is in the inner circle, he seemed to be one of the quieter ones of the inner circle, close to Jesus, but probably not as close as Peter and John were to Jesus. But we do see this. We see that Jesus gave him a nickname, just like he gave Peter that nickname of the rock. Let's read this. We're in Mark, the third chapter, in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. You see, he's choosing the apostles here, and the word apostle literally means to send out. And to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. So they were going to have miraculous powers to be able to confirm the message that they preached. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, now let's notice verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonergius, that is, sons of thunder. Now what a nickname. Lord, what are you going to call him? Bonergius. What does that mean? Sons of thunder. Well, where in the world did they get that name? 
I wonder if any of you have two sons uh, that maybe were a little rambunctious, that they seem to kind of rattle the windows a lot. They seem to kind of shake up things around the house. And maybe there's times that you've looked at your sons and said, yeah, that's what they ought to be called, sons of thunder. I know oftentimes in the community that I grew up in, a small community, we were oftentimes referred to as the brushy boys, and that wasn't always a compliment. Sometimes people thought we were louder than what we ought to be, and maybe more rambunctious. I tell you that something about this name, Sons of Thunder, didn't have all the complimentary rings that probably an individual would like to have as a nickname. And so as we think about this fellow James, we think about a man that must have been outspoken in many senses. He must have been one that was intense about certain things. He must have been one that had a zeal or excitement, at least for some areas of life, or he wouldn't have been given the name Son of Thunder. But yet we also see, as we look at the idea of zeal, that zeal can be a good thing, but zeal without knowledge. In other words, knowledge puts a rein on zeal. If you've ever thought about uh, a horse that, that is high-spirited, a horse that is high-spirited but is under control of the reins is a good thing. Think about a horse that's high-spirited, that's out of control. It can hurt a lot of people. It can hurt the rider. It can hurt people that are standing by. Romans, the 10th chapter, we see an example of this, of zeal without the reins of knowledge. In Romans, the 10th chapter, notice verse 2 and 3. He says, But I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. This is a wonderful passage here to help us understand the beauty of zeal, but how detrimental it can be if we do not couple it with the knowledge of God. I hope that all of us here are zealous about certain ministries in this work. You know, when we think about the body of Christ, we all have different roles, different responsibilities. We're not going to be excited to the same level about every ministry. We're not going to be equally excited about uh, the same ministries. But think about this. It'd be terrible to not be excited about any work of the Lord's church. Something's wrong. We need to take our our spiritual temperature and see if we even have a, a, a body heat and a pulse because if we're not excited about the Lord's work, something's terrible wrong. So someone says, well, I am excited. Is that great? Well, it's great if your zeal for the Lord's work is also coupled with the zeal to learn the Scriptures. This passage teaches us that if we don't know the knowledge of God, the only thing we have to rely upon is our own knowledge to set the standard of righteousness. That's dangerous because you and I aren't wise enough to set our own standards of righteousness. So tonight as we study about James, let's turn to Luke the ninth chapter and let's see a time where he tried to set his own standard. In other words, he was zealous, but he was zealous without knowledge. And as we think about this, let's learn how important it is for us to have our zeal channeled in the right areas as we think about the sons of thunder. And I hope that you don't think this is rude, 
but I'm struggling, and we'll try to make it to the end of this service. I've got to get some breath. <clears throat> can you pipe me up just a little bit louder? We're going to tone down, and we're going to see if we can make it through. I'm losing it quickly, and I know you're loving that, right? Uh, you hope I don't make it, but we'll see how far we can make it. <clears throat> In Luke, the ninth chapter, let's begin reading at verse 51 and making some explanations along the way. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The time to be received up was that Jesus knew it was time for him to start making his way to Jerusalem because this would be his last Passover that he would celebrate and he would become the Passover lamb and, of course, dying on the cross, being buried and resurrected again. And so he's setting his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, he knows where the journey's leading, and he's not going to let anything deter him from that. And verse 52, still in Luke 9. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. In other words, a small group is traveling with Jesus on this way to Jerusalem. They're traveling from the Galilean area. They're going down to Jerusalem. They're going to pass through Samaria. Most Jews would not do that. Most Jews would go around Samaria. Jesus loved all of mankind. He didn't go around those that the Jews hated. He went through to make contact with those people. And so on the way, he sends some ahead to find a village, perhaps if they can stay the night. Now let's notice what happens. Verse 53, But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now let's think for just a moment, who are Samaritans? When we go back and read in the old Bible and the books of Kings, we learn that the Samaritans were a small remnant of Jews that intermarried with those of Assyria. And because of that, they started mixing paganism and worship of the Almighty God. In other words, if you went to a Samaritan and say, do you believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch? They'd say, absolutely, that's what we follow. But yet, if you'd have watched their rituals and their practices, you'd have said, now, wait a minute. Some things look familiar, but many things don't. Your feast days are different. The way you offer sacrifice is different. The place you offer sacrifice. In other words, they didn't go down to Jerusalem like the Jews did. They went up to Mount Gerasim. And so there were several things different. And so what happened was, over generations of time, there grew a huge barrier of prejudice. And in that barrier of prejudice, thank you very much. And in that huge barrier of prejudice, note this, it was not only a prejudice against as a race. In other words, the Jews did not love and appreciate the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't love and appreciate the Jews, but it also was a hatred for their religion. And so did you notice there in 53 they did not receive him. Why? They told why. Because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. In other words, you can imagine, and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm saying this is the way it might have been, but we have the exact why here, the because, but it could have been like this. A few messages say, there's a group traveling behind us and they're going to be coming in your village. Would it be okay if they spend the night here? Why are they traveling? Well, we're traveling along with Jesus of Nazareth and in, in Jerusalem. Oh, no. No. Nobody's going to stay in our village here that's on their way to celebrate the Passover. 
because their face was set upon absolutely they them as a people it was also for the very kind of worship that they offered to God and so we see this prejudice being built now if you love Jesus and you left your father and you left your fishing boats to serve Jesus and someone would not even let Jesus spend the night in their village and you were a zealous person what would you say to them? Ah, you want me to take care of them? You want us to run them out of their own village? You want us to just destroy their village? Well, let's see how it unfolds here, 54. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now, when we go back and we read in 2 Kings, the first chapter, we read of the very story they were referring to. In other words, James and John knew the Bible. They knew that Elijah had called fire down upon Samaritans. They knew not only were they in that area, but they knew how those people had been destroyed in the past. Remember the way this story unfolded, and this is just very brief, and if you're not familiar with it, pencil it down and go back and read 2 Kings, the first chapter. As the king had been injured, he was going to send to what we would call witchcraft, soothsayers, to find out the future of whether or not he was going to live. And God sends Elijah to, to intervene with that messenger that was supposed to find out if the king was going to live or die and says, tell him that the reason he's having to send out is because they're not serving the God. Therefore, there's not a God in Israel, and he's going to die on his bed. This just fires the king up when he receives that message. So he says, I'm going to send out a man that is in my army that's over 50 men, and I'm going to send the 50 men. Elijah's standing on the hill there. The 50 men come out to kill Elijah. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and the 50 men are consumed. King sends out another leader of 50 men. The leader and his 50 men come out, they come to the hillside where Elijah is. Elijah calls down fire again, consumes them to prove that he is a man of God. The third leader is sent out. Now, you probably, if, even if you don't know the story, you've guessed it by now. This leader is no dummy. He's seen the other two leaders go out, and they didn't come home except in ashes. And he goes, and he kneels in front of Elijah, and he says, Please don't consume me or my men with fire. We'll become your servants. And so they did, and they went back, and they talked to the king. And so this is the story that he's referring to here when he's saying he's zealous. He wants to protect his Lord. He wants everybody to honor his Lord. And if they're not going to honor the Lord, there needs to be a, an end to their life right now. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? And you can imagine Jesus thinking, Sons of thunder, there you go again. Oh, you're zealous. But, now let's look here in Luke 9 of what he says. He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. 
and they went to another village. You see, the first thing that we need to know here is they were arrogant. Did you notice there in verse 54 where they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire from heaven? Friends, they didn't have the authority to command fire from heaven. They were standing with God in the flesh on earth. And yet they're saying, we could call down powers from above. I need to note that oftentimes when we get real zealous about something, and, I'm, and, and again, we're just talking about nature here, so, so uh, let's really open ourselves up and let's be willing to say, you know, that's happened to me before. And let's learn from this. When we get real zealous about something, it's easy to become arrogant about it. It's easy to think that if other people aren't zealous like we are, something's wrong with them. And if other people aren't zealous like us, they just don't understand the fullness of it. So therefore, it ought to be our place to put them into place. Let's just make one quick observation again of arrogance in this family. Go back to um, Matthew, the 20th chapter. In Matthew, the 20th chapter, we see another wonderful, well, it's not wonderful. It's a terrible example, but it, is, it just shows the arrogance that sometimes this family experienced. Now, keep in mind, because they had probably some kind of prominence in their community, it probably was a greater struggle for them. When we read in Matthew, the 20th chapter, beginning in verse 20, mother, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. In other words, James and John's mother are asking Jesus for something. And what they're asking at the end of 21 for my two sons may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left hand. Now, Jesus answers her and says, woman, you don't even know what you're asking me. But then, here's what I want us to notice in tonight's study. What kind of effect does this kind of arrogance have on other people? In other words, I would suggest to you that probably this woman, her motives might have been good. They might have been pure. You know what? I believe in Jesus. I believe he's doing some good things. And I just want my sons to be along a part of this good thing. But I want them higher than everybody else. Now, that kind of arrogance, how does it leave the peers feeling around them? Let's read verse 24. We're still in Matthew 20. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. And I loved how the, the King James says this. It says, when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation. In other words, there was enough anger boiling in them that it moved them. You can imagine them talking to each other. About who do they think they are? Who do James and John think they are? Who does their mother think they are? They don't think we're as zealous as they are. They don't think that we're worthy like they are. Who do they think they are? Well, here... We see that same kind of arrogance here where they are zealous. And they're zealous for religious or at least things that are involved in the life of Jesus. But yet even Jesus has to call them down again here and say, listen, you've got the wrong spirit turning within you. When someone crosses you, would you rather see them repent 
Or would you rather see them destroyed? That's what Jesus sons of thunder. You, know, you don't even know what spirit you're of. In verse 55, and he told them in 56 what spirit he was of, implying that's what spirit you ought to be about. Well, Jesus, what spirit are you about? And he says, I'm not here to destroy men's lives, but to save them. There's going to be a time that Jesus will come to this. He won't come to this earth, but he will come and call everyone up to him, and there will be a day of judgment. But Jesus made it loud and clear in the Scriptures that when he came to this earth, it wasn't to condemn but to save, John 3 and 17. He made it clear in the Scriptures in John 12 that his purpose now was not to judge but to save men. And now he's standing and talking to two of the apostles that he loves dearly, and he's trying to get them not only to understand it, but to start practicing that in their very life then. Why is this so important? Let's put a conclusion to this and wrap it up in hopefully a way that will motivate all of us to be zealous, but to make sure that we practice that zeal with a knowledge of God's Word and humility. Let's turn to Acts the 8th chapter. In Acts the 8th chapter we see why Jesus wanted to put a hold on destroying these Samaritans. In Acts the 8th chapter, now the church has been established and Philip is going uh, to leave Jerusalem because of persecution that has come into the church in the Jerusalem area. That's Acts the 8th chapter in verse 1. And then let's read where he went in verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord, heeding the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Now notice this. And there was great joy in that city. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Just a few years earlier, the sons of thunder were saying, let's call down fire from heaven and, and wipe this village out. And now Philip is going back to Samaria and multitudes are hearing the preaching of Jesus and saying, I want to be baptized into Christ. I want to be a Christian. I need to realize that even though others don't always share our zeal for the Lord at that moment, our prayer ought to not be, God, let's destroy them. Our prayer ought to be, Lord, I pray that they one day will be saved. Jesus hung on a cross and he looked down in a prayer for their sins to be forgiven of the very ones that crucified him. And just a little more than 50 days later, those individuals stood on the day of Pentecost 
and Acts 2 and heard the sermon and they were forgiven of their sins as they were baptized into Christ. You see, Jesus didn't hang from that cross and say, I want to destroy my enemies. He hung from that cross and said, I want to save my enemies. I know that's easy to say. It's a little tougher to do. But I want to challenge all of us here tonight. Let's be as zealous for God as it is physically possible to be. But let's make sure that our zeal doesn't become tainted by pride and arrogance, that we lose sight of the value of people's souls. James, son of thunder, as we read Acts, the 12th chapter, it's the only time he stands alone in the Scriptures. He stood alone with his neck on the chopping block. He matured. He matured to the point that he was willing to give his life for Jesus Christ. Now that's a son of thunder coming through in the end. All of us have had our days and our times and our moments of thunder. But let's make sure that as we leave here tonight, that we leave here having matured. And that that zeal is just as great, but it's channeled in the right area. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, won't you place your life and your zeal in His hands? If you have been baptized into Christ, but let... Yet you've allowed your life to become involved and maybe even excited in areas that should not be. Let's bring our life and let's bring our zeal and back to the Lord and let's move in the right direction. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.